Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Um, I don't know if it's a congratulatory clap or a sympathy clap, but Paul deserves something. And so um, that was riveting. <laughs> so exciting. Um, today is the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, it's a season within the Christian calendar where we, um, it, it teaches us to long for Christmas, where we celebrate and remember the arrival of our Messiah, our Savior, right? So over the next few weeks, we'll be preaching through the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, like Paul said. Um, the Gospel of Matthew was written by a man named Matthew. He was uh, one, of one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and Matthew's gospel was written to a predominantly Jewish audience. And so the way Matthew tells the Christmas story is meant to speak to Jews in particular. And so hopefully over these next few sermons, we'll get to see the arrival of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament taught. In fact, the gospel of Matthew references the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. In other words... Matthew, which was written after Jesus, makes a multitude of references to that portion of the Bible written before Jesus. And so this is the first place we should turn to understand how we're supposed to read the Old Testament. And conveniently, it's the first book in the New Testament, so it, so it serves as sort of a bridge between the two ages. But before we get into our passage today, I'd like to familiarize us with a few names. Uh, there'll be a couple times throughout the sermon where I ask you to just bear with me. Um, you, already, you, you were already so gracious to Paul, um, so bear with me here. Uh, the book of Genesis tells the story of Tamar. She was a disadvantaged Gentile widow, and Gentile just means not a Jew, okay? She was a disadvan disadvantaged Gentile widow who disguised herself as a prostitute in order to dupe her father-in-law into giving her a son. The book of Joshua tells the story of Rahab, another Gentile prostitute who helped Jewish spies to escape the king of Jericho. The book of Ruth tells the story of Ruth, another Gentile widow who proposed to a Jewish man by laying at his feet as he slept. And the book of 2 Samuel tells the story of Bathsheba, a Gentile woman who was taken advantage of by the adulterous King David. So what, what do these four women have in common? Four things. Number one, their stories were scandalous. These are not the stories we tell our daughters and ask them to emulate. Number two, over time, despite these scandals, each woman came to be admired within the Jewish tradition as faithful and virtuous. Number three, all of them were Gentiles. They were not Jews. And number four, each woman mentioned, each woman is mentioned within the genealogy of Christ here in Matthew chapter one. All right, so keep that in mind. We're gonna return to that a couple times over the next few minutes. But the book of Matthew, Matthew 1.1, opens like this. The book of Sorry. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, 
The Gospel of Matthew opens by announcing the arrival of the long-anticipated Messiah. In light of all that God promised to the ancestors of Jesus, his arrival is the climax of redemptive history. God's promise to David was that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. And God's promise to Abraham was that his descendants would be a blessing to the nation. So in in Jesus, the son of David, the people of Israel have that long-awaited king. And in Jesus, the son of Abraham, the nations have that long-awaited blessing. And so the advent of Jesus Christ is the advent and fulfillment of God's promises to rescue his people and to restore this broken world. The world's brokenness is made clear and obvious within the genealogy itself. If we, had, if we had time to trace our way through each of these names and each of these stories, we would quickly see that Jesus' ancestors were in desperate need of salvation. Jesus' ancestors needed him. But we don't have time to look at every story. And instead, we'll look first to the structure of this genealogy. And in fact, Matthew invites us to consider the structure. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And so Matthew has structured this genealogy into three groups of 14 generations. But here's the thing. In doing so, Matthew has passed over and excluded a number of generations. He adjusted the list in order to fit his pattern. Why would he do that? We already, we already established that this book was written to a predominantly Jewish audience. And so shouldn't Matthew have expected that the Jews would pick up on a discrepancy here? Yes. He should have, and in fact, I think he was counting on it. See, by altering the genealogy, Matthew intends to instruct us. For instance, women, and especially non-Jewish women, were not typically included in Jewish genealogies. And yet Matthew references Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And he does this because he wants to teach us about God's mercy. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And it's odd, but that verse speaks to a theme within the genealogy of Christ. The phrase brought forth in iniquity just means I am the descendant of sinners. It's the theme of Jesus' ancestry. But, Matthew instructs us, there is no past There is no story so scandalous that can set you outside of God's merciful reach. Jesus came for the Gentile women, which is to say that he came for everybody. The king has come for prostitutes and adulterers. The king has come for you and for me. So so Matthew is teaching us about God's mercy. But Matthew's genealogy also excludes several evil generations from the royal line. And he does this because he wants to teach us about God's judgment. 
God's mercy is good news, but so is God's judgment. Why? Because it tells us that God will not allow evil to reign on the earth forever. The arrival of King Jesus inaugurated an indestructible kingdom marked by love and joy and peace and justice. And Christians believe that one day he's going to return and finish what he started and eradicate evil once and for all. So Matthew's genealogy, it it offers mercy, but it warns of judgment. So even within this seemingly boring portion of Scripture, it's a portion of Scripture we're all tempted to skip over, right? You open up to the book of Matthew and you start reading in verse 18. Admit it, right? But even within this portion of Scripture, God is inviting each and every one of us to receive his mercy and to turn away from the sin and the evil that has scandalized our own stories and to step into his kingdom of grace and goodness and to become a part of the solution. So, we should not read this genealogy as a, as a biological, historical genealogy. But that's not to say that, that it's fiction, either. Matthew didn't make this up out of thin air. Rather, it's a summary of redemptive history. It's a God-inspired interpretation of past events. Matthew is using history to preach the gospel. So, why is Matthew so eager to point out these three groups of 14 generations? Again, bear with me. In the Bible, the number seven is a number of divine completion. God rested on the seventh day after creating the universe. There are seven days in a week. Sacrificial animals had to be at least seven days old. Joshua was commanded to march around Jericho for seven days, making seven circuits on the seventh day, having seven priests blow seven trumpets. There were seven branches on the lampstand in the tabernacle. The list goes on. Those are just a few examples. And so the number seven is a number of divine completion, which means the number 14 is a double measure of divine completion. Seven times two equals 14. I'll give you the answer. Matthew is assuring his readers that God has been in control throughout the entire history of the nation of Israel. From Abraham to Jesus, everything happened under God's sovereign hand. That season of prosperity, God was in control. Those years in captivity, God was in control. That time in exile, God was in control. And so I want you to think about your own joys and sorrows and pleasures and pain. What's the point of all that? That's an age-old question. What's the point? Are we just spinning hopelessly out of control, or is there some purpose to our existence? The Gospel of Matthew gives us the answer in numerical form. It's the number 14. Everything that has ever happened to you, everything you have ever experienced happened under God's sovereign hand. And one day he will do the math for you. You're going to get to see the traces of divine completion running throughout all your joys and sorrows and pleasure and pain. The same God who orchestrated the history of Israel cares deeply for each of us. 
He was there when you got laid off. He knows you want a spouse. He even knows what it's like to die. And he cares deeply for each of us. But it gets even better than that. Three fourteens is also six sevens, which means that Jesus comes to inaugurate the seventh seven. What's the significance of that? Well, when something is completed, what do you do? When, on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested, right? When something is completed, we rest. And so the number seven also represents the Sabbath. In verse 16, the name of Jesus ushers in the seventh seven within Matthew's genealogy, which means that Jesus has come to bring a special type of rest. He has come to bring a super Sabbath. And in Old Testament terms, uh, Jesus has come to bring the Jubilee Sabbath. What's the Jubilee Sabbath? Let's read from Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. And so according to Israelite law, the nation of Israel was expected to give special observance to every seventh Sabbath year. During this year of Jubilee, all the slaves were to be set free, all the debts were to be paid, and all of Israel was to return to its land. This was intended to represent freedom and the end of exile. It, everything was being restored. Everything was being put right. And that's what Advent means for us. That's what the Advent of Jesus Christ means for us. Advent is a season of anticipation, but what do we anticipate? We anticipate the advent of true and eternal rest. God has promised to give us true and eternal rest, and Matthew is showing us that our rest has come at last. And so when we observe Advent, we simulate and recreate the longing that Israel felt prior to the arrival of Christ. Today we are saying together, here he comes. And for the next three weeks, we're going to be saying, here he comes. And then on Christmas Eve, God's people are going to exhale. We're going to rest. Most of us at that point have been set free from our responsibilities and sent home to the land of our ancestors, right? And that's why everyone loves Christmas. Because at Christmas time, we are living out a gospel of true and eternal rest. Liturgically, Christmas trains us to long for rest. And one day, every day is going to be Christmas. And that is cheese ball, but it's true. So, 
Matthew's genealogy shows us how Matthew read the Old Testament. He read it as though Jesus were at the center of everything. For Matthew, Jesus was the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was trying to say. He delivers us from bondage. He brings total peace. He grants to us an inheritance. He defeats our enemies, and he brings lasting Sabbath rest. And when Israel awaited the advent of their Messiah, these were the things they were anticipating. And so in that sense, the first 17 verses of Matthew are a lesson on the significance of Advent. And next week, we're actually going to look at the birth and early years of Jesus Christ. We're going to be introduced to Jesus' parents, who were themselves wrapped up in a pretty major scandal. Jesus' mother, Mary, conceived him out of wedlock, and yet she was a virgin at the time of his birth. In terms of scandals, it does not get much stranger than that, right? And that brings us back to the four women we discussed at the beginning. Clearly, scandalous stories are a theme within Matthew's opening chapter. Rather than listing Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or Leah, uh, who were all faithful and respected matriarchs within this same genealogy. Matthew intentionally lists Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Why? Because in the midst of a fifth scandal, these women defended Mary's honor. Matthew references these four women representing four scandals as if to say, I'm about to introduce you to Mary. And her story was scandalous too. But remember, you came to recognize the virtue and faithfulness in these women despite their scandals. And I'm asking you to do the same for Mary. You didn't consider their children illegitimate. I'm asking you not to consider Mary's child illegitimate. So, if you have a scandalous story, or if you're ashamed of things in your past, these four women are here to defend your honor as well. God wants to bury that shame beneath a mountain of his grace. And, and because of Jesus, who has made you clean, he can still use you, and he can still use you powerfully. There's one more thing I want to point out here. It's no small thing that these women were Gentiles. These women were not Jews. It's no small thing to recognize that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was not a purebred Israelite. Jesus had Gentile blood running through his veins. And that may not seem like a very big deal to us. We, we live in the United States. It's a melting pot, right? But for Matthew's Jewish audience, this was a huge deal. And if you really think about it, it's a huge deal for us too. Because when on the cross Jesus bled, he bled not only for the Jews. He bled the blood of Israelites and Canaanites and Moabites and Hittites. When on the cross Jesus bled, he bled the blood of the nations. He bled for you 
and me. He bled for every single person on the planet who will ever call him Lord. So the global, international body of Christ that we call the church, it was literally represented within the body, the human body of the man Jesus Christ. That is no small thing. And so in April, when we preach, uh, we're going to get to chapter 28, and we're going to preach the Great Commission. And when we get there, I want you to think back to this genealogy, because Matthew's introduction anticipates his conclusion. I want you to remember that the Great Commission was not a new thing for Jesus. When he sends out, when he commissions his disciples to disciple the nations, he has his own ancestors in mind. Like many of us in this room who agonize over unbelieving family members, Jesus was eager to see salvation come to his own flesh and blood. Every nation. So remember that um, this holiday season as you spend time with your own families. Jesus knows what it is like to agonize over lost and broken members of the family. He understands that. In fact, that's his family too. And he put you there for a reason. And that's to be a blessing like the son of Abraham was a blessing. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for sending Jesus in the fullness of time uh, to be our Messiah, our Savior. I pray that, I pray that we would leave this place encouraged, uh, knowing that that no story is so scandalous as to put us outside of your merciful reach. And God, I, I pray that you would teach us this Advent season and really every day to long for that true and eternal rest and to find it in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.